And uh, with that said, I want to make mention also of, uh, if you are, have been around Catalyst for the past several weeks, you're aware of this. Um, uh, a few weeks ago, we had our Vision Sunday, and on December 12th, if you call Catalyst home, uh, we're asking simply this. You would pray and ask God how he would have for you to give in what we call our legacy offering. It's a once-a-year offering we do. Uh, it's above and beyond the tithe to go towards the advancement of what God's called us to as a church. Uh, and there are three areas that we're focusing on as a church together uh, that we're believing God's calling us to in 2022. Uh, and that is to reach more people with the good news of Jesus, which is always a good thing. I've said it before, and I always say it. We are about Jesus here at Catalyst Church. I mean, I love that song that Jesus changes everything. How, how many has Jesus ever changed your life in any area of your life? Come on, can we just give God some praise for that? And we want more people to find hope in Christ. So through our online experience, through what we're doing here in Bethesda, um, and future locations that we'll have around the D.C. area uh, and beyond. Uh, secondly is developing all and discipling all generations here at Catalyst Church. I've shared it before, but I'm going to keep sharing it. They show with each succeeding generation, there are less and less people following Christ. And we're going to do our part to reverse that trend in the next generation in Jesus' name. Uh, so we're going to invest in our kids, invest in our student ministry. Uh, I think it was last Sunday, we actually had the most kids and students we've ever had in one Sunday here at Catalyst Church. Uh, which is pretty incredible. Uh, so uh, how many of you know, bless the kids team in Jesus' name. Uh, thank you for our kids team who serve. I know a, a number of you jumped on the team last week through Next Steps. Uh, can we put our hands together for our kids team? Just thank them. They're amazing. And one other team I want to shout out, our setup team. Uh, I want to just remind us as a church, uh, when we come in here on a Sunday, uh, just to make you aware uh, the Bethesda Hotel in Hilton Properties do not put up our signage uh, or the flags you see when you come in. Uh, that is a group of men and women who come uh, at 7 o'clock in the morning, and they set up so we can have church. So can we also just show some honor to them as well? They're incredible. And then lastly, to make a greater difference throughout the Washington, D.C. area and beyond, that's through our outreach uh, initiatives through our serve days, through the outreach like the one coming up, through Thanksgiving drives, and then also nationally and internationally, uh, we partner with ARC that plants churches all around the world. We partner with Convoy of Hope that responds when there's crises. Uh, and just so you know, through our financial partnership with Convoy of Hope, when there is a, uh, a hurricane, a natural disaster anywhere in the world, uh, that your giving is actually helping to support the work they do. They're always boots on the ground providing supplies for those in need. So thank you, thank you, thank you for your generosity, enabling to help those in need. Uh, with that said, I want to dive into part three of this series. And um, they already started my, my clock, so I got I to hurry up. Uh, I see what you did there, production team. Okay. Um, but we are in part three. If you missed any of it, uh, go back on our YouTube channel or our podcast. Uh, our first week, we talked about the power of obedience, how the blessing of God follows obedience to the word of God. Uh, last week, we talked about storing up treasures in heaven and how we can steward our life here on earth for the sake of eternity. Um, and, and the reason, kind of the, the why behind this series, in fact, Hebrews eleven sixteen 16 our foundational scripture, which is from the, the hall of faith in scripture in Hebrews 11. And it says this, referring to great men and women of God who had made a significant difference. It says, this is, um, it says, but they were looking for a better place, a heavenly 
homeland. And this is why God is unashamed to be called their God. They were focused beyond this earth. And I've said it now. This will be my third week in a row, and I'm going to keep saying it. At the end of our life, um, and let me say this, there's, there's messages and there's scriptures um, that give us pastoral guidance for here and now. Uh, as I've said, we did a relationship series back in September, October, which gave us some guidance for our relationships. But then there are scriptures and there are teachings that are going to help us for the life beyond this life. James, the brother of Jesus, said this life here on earth is but a vapor. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. The vast majority of your life will spend wherever you spend eternal life. And that this series is about preparing us for that moment because there are two judgments every single person will face. There's the great white throne judgment, which the, 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 the question there from God will be like, have you surrendered your life fully to Jesus Christ? How many are grateful that your entrance into heaven is not contingent upon how good you are? Come on. Because some, all of us in this room wouldn't make it uh, if it was based on that. But because of Jesus and his righteousness and what he did for us, and by making Jesus Christ our Lord, we will enter into eternity with him in heaven. Come on. Can we thank God for that? So that's the first judgment. All, everybody will face that. That's why in Scripture it says every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. The question is, will you confess it before that day? Because everybody will acknowledge it on that day. Just what, who will confess it prior to that day will determine where you spend eternity. The second judgment is called the judgment seat of Christ. And this is where actually you'll be judged based upon what you did here on earth. And there will be rewards in heaven contingent upon what you did here on earth. That, 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 that we'll look at our life. How do we steward our life here on earth for the sake of heaven? Again, that doesn't affect our entrance into heaven. But it does reflect the rewards that we have in heaven. There were different levels of rewards in heaven based upon what we did here on earth. And that's a series about preparing us for that moment because we will stand before King Jesus one day. And I want to prepare for that moment. If I didn't, I would not be a, a biblical pastor if I did not prepare you for that moment that you stand before him on that day. But with that said, I want to dive into today's conversation and uh, before I do, I want to ask a question. Has anybody ever heard of the phrase or the idea of a runner's high? Anybody ever hear, heard of a runner's high? Anybody ever experienced a runner's high? A few people. Uh, how many have ever experienced runner's pain? Okay, that's me. Okay, the majority of us. All right. I'll be honest. When I heard about this whole idea of a runner's high years ago, I was like, I'm like, that, they crazy. Runner's high? Like, I've been in pain. I don't know about a runner's high. But as I researched it, and you probably already know this, is that when you run for a certain length of time or at a certain intensity, there are two chemicals released in your brain. There's endorphins, which are the pleasure chemicals. They're released in, in different activities. And then there are these, uh, there's also one called, uh, I want to make sure I get this right. It's called a, um, an endocannabinoid. Yes, it is the same compound found in cannabis. That it's actually released when you run, which gives you that state of relaxation. Some of you are like, I'm going to go run today in Jesus' name, okay? Some of you can stop using cannabis and you can just go for a run, okay? Welcome to church. We're glad you're here. 
But I didn't really experience, I didn't really believe that there's just such thing as a runner's high until I, I found out it actually happens through intense exercise. And I've actually experienced this. I don't, I'm not big into running, but I like to lift weights. I've experienced this. In fact, one of the reasons I, I'm consistent working out is because of that experience. About halfway through my workout, I'll feel that high. I'll feel that. It kind of awakens me. It kind of gives me this sense of joy. Uh, kind of working out, and I realize this is true. Again, it's called a runner's high, but it can apply to any type of exercise. Now, let me ask you this. If I were to tell you that, yes, there's a runner's high, but there's also something called a giver's high or a helper's high. Right up the street here, some of you work there. The National Institute of Health in 2006 did a study. Here's what they found. When people give charitably, when they give of their finances, it activates a region of the brain associated with pleasure, social connection, and trust, creating a warm glow effect. They believe it releases endorphins, producing the positive feeling. They coined this term a helper's high. That actually you can get a high from giving. Last week I shared how Harvard did a study. They actually found the same chemicals released in sex is also released in giving. That it produces the same degree of of, of high. Why is it important to note? Because the passage we'll be reading today out of 2 Corinthians 9, Paul, the Apostle Paul, refers to this idea of being a cheerful giver. I want to be honest, years ago when I read that, I thought to myself, oh, I need to, I need to work myself up and be happy and give. Uh, and what I found as we look at both scripture and science, we're going to see this today, that you actually become cheerful because of giving. In fact, science is affirming this, that we actually experience this cheerfulness. Before we read the scripture, though, let's pray, and then we're going to dive into God's word. Father, we thank you for your word today. It's a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We pray that you would speak to us today, Father. We posture our hearts and our minds to receive from you. It is in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6 through 15, it says this, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor, and their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed for the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge your harvest of righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. The service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but it's also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ. And for your generosity in sharing with them and everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Let me give you some context of this letter that Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians. Paul wrote first uh, the, the letter of 1 Corinthians. Between 1 and 2 Corinthians, Paul visits Corinth. And when he visits Corinth, he sees, and many of you know this, uh, the church of Corinthians had some issues. Uh, the, the city of Corinth was very much opposed to the ways of God, and some of those ways had been coming into the church. Uh, so when he visits, he experiences some personal pain because he's as a leader of the people. And then the church in Corinth, there's actually church leaders rebelling against Paul's leadership. So he leaves Corinth in great pain. 
So 2 Corinthians has, has two major focus. The first is this. He's actually setting some things back in right. 2 Corinthians is a pastoral correction letter. He's saying there's some things you're not practicing that I taught you before, and I'm going to reiterate. And one of them was about Christian economics or the power of generosity. Because the Corinthians were very wealthy Christians. They had more than enough, but they weren't being generous. So 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul gives two whole chapters speaking about generosity to set it right once again. And then he also, the back half of the, of the letter, he's actually defending his character because they were, uh, they were basically uh, kind of saying things about him that were not true. And he kind of defends his character and his work. So in this moment, he kind of is addressing their, their lack of generosity. And he's kind of speaking to and giving teaching and reminding of the power of generosity and how important it is in the life of a believer. If you've been around Catalyst, you've heard this before, but we see in Scripture the importance that God places upon it when it comes to our generosity. In fact, there are over 500 verses in the Old New Testament on prayer, nearly 500 on faith, but over 2,000 on money and possessions. Last week, we learned where our treasure is, our heart will be. It's important we talk about prayer. It's important we talk about faith. But God has a lot to say about how we handle our money and our possessions. So I want to draw out three truths um, that I think we need to take hold of from this passage of, from the Apostle Paul today. And uh, here's the first one, is that everything we have is from God. He says this, uh, he wants you to be a cheerful giver, not reluctantly or under compulsion. And one theologian in a commentary I read said, in this moment, Paul noticed a reluctancy in the Corinthian church. And he was, he was noticing that they had forgotten the very fact that everything they have is from God. God. It reminds me of Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 17. This is the Lord speaking to the Israelites. He says this, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for he, it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. See, the Israelites had gotten, um, they had gotten distracted from the one who gave the blessing. They had gotten distracted with the blessing. They had gotten caught up in focusing on things, and God reminds them, hey, let me just remind you, I was the one who gave you the ability to have the wealth, to have the possessions you have. Around me several weeks ago, uh, my, uh, my son was, was going into my oldest daughter's uh, room, and when he was, uh, my oldest daughter was uh, trying to keep people out of her room in that moment. Uh, she is, uh, my oldest kind of probably falls a little more introverted. My two youngest a little more extroverted. Uh, and uh, I, I fall a little more introverted. So I kind of understand you need your alone time sometimes. But anyways, I walked upstairs. And when I walk upstairs and go into her room, she said, you can't come in my room. Come on, parents. How many of you know? I'm like, wait a minute. Let me, let me just course correct some things. You have a room because of your father and your mother. Come on, parents, you feel me? Come on. I'm like, as long as you live in my house, it's my room, all right? <laughs> when you have your own place, then it's your room. Until then, it is my room. But he, here's what God's saying in this moment, because the Israelites are saying, this is mine. I earned this, right? 
We have a culture that says, I earned this vacation. I earned this new car. I earned this house. Can I tell you, it was God in heaven who gave you the the ability to earn anything. It was God who put air in your lungs. He put that brain in your head that can think of incredible things. It was God himself. I'm not saying you didn't have anything to do with it. I'm just saying you weren't the one that came up with it. <laughs> but our culture will convince us that we earned it, therefore it's, it's ours. But it's actually God's. Our culture will also say, you know what, I need to take care of myself. Whereas the ways of Jesus and the kingdom of God says, I need to, I'm here to bless others. And I think the same moment here that God's speaking to the Israelites, that Paul is correcting the Corinthians, I think it's important for us to lean into, because here's why. When we understand that everything is from God, it then changes how you manage everything. When you understand it's his, it's not your money, it's God's. God gave you the ability to work that job. God gave you those skills. God gave you those opportunities. And when you understand that, it changes how you manage everything. Let me give you three ways biblically how to manage God's money. Because can I just speak real with you for a moment? I might step on some toes. But I'm wearing slippers, not steel-toed boots, okay? Because I love you. Listen, you didn't earn it. God gave it to you. I'm not, I'm not saying, I'll say it again. You did not earn your money. God gave you that money. And each of us have been given a certain ability to earn certain degrees, levels of money. But it's all the same God. I said this last week, and I'm going to say it again. God will not hold you accountable to somebody else's calling. He will hold you accountable to what he's entrusted to you. See, when we get to heaven, those rewards, they're not according to how much we gave or how much time we served or whatever we did with our life. He's going to look at what did I ask you to do? What did I entrust you with? That's what we'll be accountable towards. But let me give you three biblical ways to manage God's money because it's not your money. It's God's money. Here's the first one. I'm going to get real practical. Some of you, this is elementary, too elementary. You're beyond this, but just lean in. It's have a budget. The plans of the diligent surely lead to profit, the word says, as surely as haste leads to poverty. I once heard it said this way. Have a plan that tells your money where to go so your money doesn't tell you where to go. Like, have a, have a plan. I, I, I came across this research from Mint.com. They actually found that 65% of Americans at the end of the month do not know where their money goes. Anybody ever had that month before? You're like, I, I got more month than I got money. Anybody else? <laughs> CSNBC reported 47% of Americans carry credit card debt month to month. I think it's not a surprise. If you don't know where your money's going, you'll end up carrying debt with you. And please hear this. There's no condemnation. I'm just sharing with you wisdom from God's word. So have a budget, have a plan of where your money's going. Here's, oh, let me give one kind of a, a, a plug. We have a faith and life course. We're about halfway through the fall semester right now called Financial Peace University. If you have not taken Financial Peace University, can I just give you encouragement? Take Financial Peace University. If you're one of the 60, whatever I said, 2%, you don't know where your money's going, take financial peace. It'll give you the basics of budgeting and paying off any debt. It's, it's a great, uh, simple and great course. You can actually go to their website online. They actually have forms on how to budget and those things. Really super helpful. All biblically based. 
Number two is save. Proverbs 21:20. The wise store up choice food and olive oil, but the fools gulp it down. There's a principle. This, I think this is a foundational principle, and some of you are already beyond this, but I'm going to give it just for the sake of, of clarity. And maybe many of you have heard this principle. It's called the 10-10-80 principle. It's that you give 10%, which we believe is the tithe. You bring back the tithe to God. You save 10%, and you live off of 80%. A 10-10-80 principle. Proverbs 22-7 says, the borrower is a slave to the lender. Again, there's no condemnation if you find yourself in debt, but biblical wisdom, as best you can, avoid being in debt. Have anybody ever felt this scripture before when you've had a, a loan payment? The borrower is slave. To, you just feel, oh, I got that payment I got to make. Again, there's no condemnation. God doesn't condemn this. It's just wisdom to not live with this. So budget, save. I know it's a simple, but then the last one is tithe. Malachi 3.8 says, will a mere mortal rob God? This is the Lord speaking to the Israelites, but you rob me. How are we robbing, you may ask, in tithes and offerings? He says, bring the whole tithe in the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Well, what's happening is the Israelites are not bringing the tithe into the temple. And uh, the storehouse was, in that day and, day and time, was a house in the community where it was an agrarian culture. They would bring their grain. In the storehouse, they would bring their grain to feed the community. So those, there were different people had different levels of grain in different size fields. Much like today, there's different socioeconomic statuses. So they would bring the grain, fill the storehouse, because for those who had needs in the community, it would feed the community. And he gives this metaphor for when it comes to the church and bringing the tithe. And this has been something practiced since the beginning of the church. In fact, the first 400 years of church history um, after the ascension of Christ, you don't even read as much about tithing in the early church because it was a basic understood principle that, that you, 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 you bring that tithe back to provide spiritual food for the community. In the same way that the storehouse, the grain provided food for the community, the tithe provides spiritual food for the community. You know, in my household, I have the privilege and honor of being the grocery shopper, i.e. the Instacart app user. Come on. How many praise God for Instacart? Come on. Thank you, Jesus. Uh, you never have to go to the grocery store anymore. It's great. And, uh, but I, I, so I stock the fridge and the freezer and the pantry. And if we're lacking, like, we, we, we're missing some strawberries, some cheese, or some granola bars, I have three little munchkins in my house who will be quick to tell me. Uh, because it's my responsibility to stock things to keep our house well fed. And here's what God's saying. The tithe keeps our community spiritually fed. Let me say this. Maybe you walked into Catalyst, you thought to yourself, and let me just, I said this last week, but Catalyst Church does not need your money. God does not need your money. You need to be a tither for the sake of your own heart. But, but, but the, the reason that we may come in and think to yourself, well, man, this church is running well. They don't need my tithe. 
Can I tell you your tithe? There are over 4 million people of the over 6 million in the Washington metro area alone, not to mention those who watch online, who are not actively following Jesus and connected to a local church. Your tithe is providing spiritual food, not just for you, but for those not yet here. God says, this is the way I've set it up and ordered it. You bring the tithe. You put me first so that the community can be fed. He goes on to say this, test me in this. Oh, let me say this. You know that word when he says, he says, you're robbing God? That literally means you're defrauding God. He's saying by you not tithing, you're making me out to be a fraud because you're believing I am not good. Because we're going to see what he goes on to say this. Test me in this, which means let me prove it to you. That's what it means in the original Hebrew. And see that I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing, there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops. Vines in your fields will not drop before the fruit is ripe. Then all the nations will call you blessed, and it will be a delightful land. That word, he says, prove it. Let me prove my goodness to you. Listen, when you give God your first, he will bless the rest. Can I say this? I would rather have 90% of my income blessed than 100% not blessed. And he says, if you trust me with the 10, watch me bless the 90 over your life. He invites us to prove that he is good. Herbert Grant says this, the Lord does not need your tithing as far as he is concerned, but you need it for your growth spiritually and temporally that the windows of heaven may open and the spirit of the living God can be given to you. I love what Randy Alcorn wrote a great book called The Treasure Principle. He said this, if you think you cannot afford to tithe, ask yourself this question. If your income was reduced by 10% tomorrow, would you still be able to live? Not would you still be able to keep your standard of living, would you still be able to live? Again, please hear this. There's no condemnation. It's a calling us to what God has for us together. So here's the second truth. So the first one's everything is from God. So we manage God's money. Second is God gives to us so he can bless others through us. He says, I will bless you abundantly so you can abound in every good work. He says, I'll supply seed for the sower. I'll increase your store. I'll enlarge your harvest of righteousness. I will enrich you in every way so you can be generous on every occasion. I know it's cliche, but it's true. We are blessed to be a blessing. You know, I was reminded of this uh, um, of uh, having young children in the household. I'm often having conversations, parents can feel me, that they'll be playing with their toys. And um, anybody have learned this? Children do not naturally share their toys. Um, and uh, I'm often reminding my children, again, you have those toys because of two people in this home called your father and your mother. And when you share your toys, that pleases your dad's heart. And I will make sure you have more than enough if you share your toys. Can I tell you, I think God in heaven looks down. And he says, man, would you just share with what you have? If you share what you have, I'll make sure you have more than enough. That's what he says. I will enrich you in every way. I will bless you to be a blessing. I'll supply seed for the sower. I'll enlarge your harvest of righteousness. If you will just entrust me. I love the Mother Teresa says, God gives us things to share. He doesn't give us things to hold. He's blessed us to be a blessing to 
to bless other people around us. I love this. Proverbs 11 says this, that one person gives freely yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly but comes to poverty. A generous person will prosper, and whoever refreshes others, they themselves will be refreshed. That word refresh means to be satisfied. It means to be fulfilled in your spirit, that a generous person is actually fulfilled. Now, and you see the scripture? This is a common theme throughout the Bible, that, that sowing and reaping. Whoever one sows, is that what you'll reap? In fact, Galatians 6, Paul says, God's not mocked. Whatever person sows, they will reap. And here we see one who's generous, man, they, they, they gain even more. But the other who withholds unduly comes to poverty. But then he says, you'll be satisfied through your generosity. It reminds me of a study done in 2013 uh, by the Science Journal. Uh, Dr. Elizabeth Dunn, Dr. Laura uh, Aiken, Dr. Michael Norton, they uh, had two different groups of people, and they gave them $20 each. And one group, they said, you go and you spend this money on yourself, buy what you would like. The other group, you go and spend this money on other people. They came back and did a self-assessment of their, their reported feelings of happiness. Those who spent it on themselves had no significant difference in their happiness, no uptick. Those who spent it on others did have a scientific difference in their levels of happiness. They made it longitudinal. They followed those people at the end of the year, and they looked at year-end bonuses. And they said those who spent the year-end bonuses on themselves compared to those who gave part of their year-end bonus away. And again, they found that those who gave part of their year-end bonus away experienced an uptick of happiness, and those who kept it for themselves did not. And here's what's also powerful. There was no scientific difference in happiness between the sizes of their bonus. Now, if you're an employer, don't say to yourself, well, that's good. I'm giving nobody nothing. Come on. Bless your employees, right? <laughs> but with what you have, be generous. You're more fulfilled when you're generous. I remember some years ago, we were trying to teach uh, my oldest this of the importance of generosity. Again, kids don't naturally want to share. And uh, I remember there was, a, there was this period of time when she would have friends come over to her house she would give them a toy, which she thought they would like. And I remember she would bring it downstairs before they left, and she would give it to them. And when she saw the kid's face of like, oh, wow, for me? And uh, I was like, thank God, less toys in our house. Thank you, Jesus. Um, but she had this, like, joy look on her face. Like, you could tell she was excited to give and for them to receive. And I told Christina at the time, I was like, she's catching the joy of giving, that she's actually finding what Jesus said in Acts 20, 35, it's more blessed to give than to receive. So what should we do? What should our response be? 2 Corinthians 8, 7, the apostle Paul says this, since you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and complex, complete earnestness and in love that we have kindled in you, see that you excel in the grace of giving. 2 Corinthians 8, the Apostle Paul has nine different words for the word giving. Do you know the overwhelming word that is used in the original Greek is the word grace? Do you want to know why? Because the very essence and nature of our God is generous. For God so loved the world that he gave. This is why God cares so much that you give. Because it's the essence and nature of who he is. So he says, when you give, you're not just giving money, you're giving the grace of God. Because generosity gives them a glimpse of the generosity of our Savior. That is the grace. Let me share with you, biblically, 
These are three types of giving or three levels of giving that we see covered both in 2 Corinthians 9 and elsewhere. Here's the first one, is spontaneous giving. He says you'll be enriched in every way so you can be generous on every occasion. That you can have those moments. And here's what spontaneous giving is. Those moments that you feel inspired, you feel moved by the Spirit of God, you feel inspired in a moment or motivated to give and to bless someone else. Sometimes you don't even know where it comes from. You say, I feel like I should just leave this really large tip. I should just bless it. I should just give to this organization. You don't always know why, but you feel that, that urging in your, your spirit. Um, I, I heard of a... Uh, this author, Christian author Bruce Wilkerson and his son David were in South Africa some years ago. They were at a conference, and afterwards they grabbed some uh, ice cream at a local restaurant. And while they were there, um, Bruce just felt this kind of strong uh, thought that to live, leave this larger tip for the waitress. The waitress comes back, gets the tip. She then circles back around, and she says, are you, are you a Christian? And he says, why do you ask? He says, because the amount that you left me for tip was the exact amount that I need to pay my rent. Listen, when you ever feel a nudge to do something, to give, you don't know what God's wanting to do on the other side of that gift. Can I tell you, I've been the recipient of where somebody's like just sent us like dinner one night. I remember one particular night, it was like a Thursday night or Friday night. It was like a long week. We were tired. And someone just said, hey, I felt led to get you all dinner tonight. And what they didn't know is like we were both exhausted it was like a blessing to us. Like you never know. What are you doing? You're extending the grace of God in that moment. So there's times you feel a nudge to lead, leave a large tip to, to, to bless somebody else. Man, be sensitive to those, to those nudges. Here's the next level, though. Spontaneous is important. We never grow out of that. But then strategic giving. In 1 Corinthians 16, 2, Paul says, on the first day of every week, each of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when the time I come, no collections will have to be made. Paul says, in other words, plan and be strategic about your giving. Here's what we've done since we've been married. I'm just sharing this as like, I think this is a good principle. The first line of our budget is our giving before our mortgage, before anything else. It's our giving. Why? Because it's God's money first, right? Here's another step further. Again, if, if, if you're able, if you have consistent income, set up recurring giving. Because here's a thought I had years ago is my rent was recurring. Now our mortgage is recurring. My Netflix is recurring. Why would my giving to God be left to a decision I have to make? Again, I submit that to you because... Because for, for me, it's not even a decision I make anymore. It's just something I've already predetermined. And is, that's if you have a consistent income. Some of you, you don't have consistency, so you can't do that. But I'm just, I'm trying to get us to think through how to be generous and excel in this grace. Here's the last level, and that's sacrificial giving. In 2 Corinthians 8, right before this chapter, he says this, um, referring to the Macedonian church, in the midst of a very severe trial... Their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. He was referring to the Macedonian church had been generous to the Corinthian church. The Macedonians, to give context, were living in extreme poverty. Extreme. Corinthians, wealthy. Macedonians, in poverty. And he says, catch this. 
For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently, catch this, they urgently plead for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. Can you imagine that? A group of people being like, oh, I can't wait. I want to be a part of giving. That was the Macedonian church. And he says this, verse 5, and they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and by the will of God also to us. You know what the Macedonian church understood? We don't give when I have enough. I don't give when I have some left over. I give because I believe the words of Jesus. It's more blessed to give than to receive. I'm telling you, this seems irrational. You want to know why? Because it is. (laughs) And sometimes following Jesus doesn't make sense. But Paul's saying they were pleading. Please, in our poverty, let us bless. They weren't even blessing their own people. They were blessing the Corinthians. And that's why Paul, in 2 Corinthians 9, I don't know if I mentioned this, he's actually teaching and encouraging and leading the Corinthian church to give an offering for Christians in Judea. So he's asking the same thing Macedonians did, asking them to do it. I was reminded of uh, the first time Christine and I, oh, that's the second time, I think, we ever participated in a legacy offering together as a married uh, couple. And we had just moved in the Washington, D.C. area, part of a local church. And um, we were, uh, what we did was we, kind of what we ask you to do is pray and ask God. And if you're married, Here's what we've done. We pray and ask God separately, uh, and then we come back together. And uh, we did that. And uh, I remember an old pastor friend of my, a pastor to, of mine told me, uh, when you do that, uh, whichever is a higher number is God because God's more generous. Uh, I'll be honest. I'm typically the lower number. I'm just going to be honest. She'll typically come back with the higher number, and then I'll be like, that's not the Lord. And then I'll go get right, and then I'll realize she is right. That's most of our marriage. Um, <laughs> so the number that she felt and we, we felt, two is one, um, would have been the, <laughs> see what I did there? Was, would have been the biggest, was the biggest check we'd ever written up until that point. Now, I'm going to be honest. Here was my justification for not giving that amount. Is that I was paying off student loan debt. And I was like, God, don't you want me to pay off my student loan debt before I give? Like, isn't that responsible? Two weeks ago, I said, if you ever justify your lack of obedience to God, you're probably the one wrong. Uh, I was wrong. <laughs> so we gave. About 45 days passed. Christina was working for a business at the time. And she received an unexpected bonus. And that one bonus paid off all of my debt. And then some. You know what God reminded me? Listen, this isn't about me because I was, I was dragging my feet. I was disobedient for a period of time. God was saying, Jeremy, will you just trust me? Will you just trust me? Can I tell you, if you feel led to give an amount that hurts, it's probably God. Because it ain't your flesh. And it sure is ain't the devil. I'm telling you, we have seen, I can give you story after story. Not about us, because I've often hesitated like, oof, okay. But well, we've seen God's faithfulness. I love what R.G. Letourneau, he, he was an inventor of earth-moving machinery years ago. 
he lived off for 10% of his income and he gave 90% away. He said this, I shovel out my money and God shovels it back, but God has a bigger shovel. You can't outgive God. Let me also give a proper theology. Because some of you are thinking, isn't that prosperity theology? Here's what prosperity theology says. By the way, we believe prosperity theology is not accurate theology. Prosperity theology is if you give to God, he will bless you for you. Be clear. God blesses you to be a blessing. God has no problem with you having nice things. He's got a big problem when nice things have you. And the biggest sign that things have you is a lack of generosity in your life. That begins with tithing. That's where you can see in your heart. That is a sign. God has a bigger shovel, church. You can't outgive God. Here's the last point, last truth, is that generosity leaves a lasting legacy and impacts others' eternity. He says the service you perform in verse 12 is supplying the needs for the Lord's people. I want you to check this. He says, and others will praise God for it. They'll praise God for your generosity, he's saying. And then this, this really thought to me. He says, for the obedience that accompanies the confession of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember I told you Paul in 2 Corinthians 8, the, ma the major word that he used for giving was grace. And now he's saying your obedience in your giving accompanies your confession of Jesus. In other words, Paul's saying this will be a sign that you follow Christ because they'll see your generosity. Has anyone ever driven somewhere where maybe you're visiting a restaurant or a hotel or somewhere for the first time and it lacked proper signage? And you couldn't find it. Anybody ever had that experience? Like you're trying to find something and you're having, like, you end up calling them or you can't find the place. Uh, I remember some, some, right before we planted, started Catalyst Church, I visited a church, friends of mine, and they had a church, their church was located in the, in the midst of a neighborhood, like in this, industri this little industrial park. And I couldn't find, when I first pulled up to the industrial park, it has many different organizations. I couldn't figure out which one was the church initially. Um, I was persistent because I wanted to go to the church, but how many know that the church was still there, it just didn't have proper signage, like it didn't have proper identification. Here's what Paul's saying. Your generosity is a sign to others that you follow Christ. Here's the words of Jesus in Matthew 6. He says, let your light, sorry, Matthew 5, 16, he says, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Dixie Fraley, she's a Christian author. She said this, we are most like God when we are giving. We're most like God when we're giving. We are following in his footsteps, his model. I'm about to close. The worship team can come forward. Uh, 2 Corinthians 9.9 says this. They have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. He's referring to them. And their righteousness will endure forever. He's quoting Psalms 112. So he says, others will praise God because of your generosity. And your righteousness will endure forever. He's saying this, that you're going to be remembered. In fact, we know this to be true. If you think about people in your life who's passed on, you don't remember people for what they get out of life. You remember people for what they give to life. 
And he's saying you'll be remembered forever by your generosity, Corinthian church, by your overwhelming generosity or result in praise to God. In 1 Corinthians, the previous letter of the church of Corinth, verse, chapter 3, verse 12, he says this, If anyone builds on a foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will come, the day will bring it to light, it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what is built survives, the builder will receive a reward. What was happening in Corinthians at this time, the first Corinthians 1, is that the Corinthian church had gotten busy uh, with just the, the business of life. Much like we, it's easy for us to do. Between the every day, the work that we have, the bills that we're paying, kids' activities, kids' school, graduate school for ourselves, we can get, if we're not careful, overly busy and we can actually lose sight of what truly matters beyond this world. And let me just be clear too, living a generous life that we see in scripture, God is not in the business of behavior modification. It starts with heart transformation. It starts with you having a generous spirit in your heart. So every aspect of your life, at work, at home, every area of your life, you live generous. That's God's will for your life. And they gotten, they gotten distracted by everything else. And he reminds them that make sure you're building your life upon things that will survive. Because at the end of this life, things will burn up. And only that which survives, that which survives, he says this, the builder will receive a reward. It's referring to the judgment seat of Christ. But giving that impacts eternity, generosity that leaves a legacy will be rewarded accordingly. I remember several years ago, I was watching one of my son's soccer games. He was four years old at the time. And uh, there, was a, there was a player on his team. He, he got the ball in the open field. And he was like excited. Um, which, if you ever watch four-year-old soccer... There's not many moments for excitement. So he was excited. He was running down the field, like, kicking that ball. I mean, he, for a moment, I'm like, this is like a little Ronaldo right here. Like, he's, it was legit. Nobody around him. He's going hard. All of a sudden, he hears parents and his coach start screaming. But this, he was locked in. He kicked the ball, back of the net. Goal, he kind of turns around, throws his arms up. Like, man, I did it. What his coach and his parents were screaming was turn around. He scored in his own goal. Excitingly, but in his own goal. As I was praying this week about the message, I, was, I remember that moment. And, and here was, I felt the word is that be careful we're not busy scoring the wrong goals. Be careful we're not so consumed with things that actually in eternity won't matter. It won't survive. Like it, 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 it won't, it will burn up. It won't survive. So I, I, wanna, I wanna give you this thought. As you're building your life, which all of your life, your work life, your 
your home life, every part of your life, are you building things in your life? Are you living a life in such a way that what you do here on earth and how you live here on earth will actually survive into eternity? And can I tell you, that's, that's one of the heartbeats behind even why we, at the end of this year, we always have this offering, legacy offering. It's because it's an opportunity for us to invest in eternity together. C.T. Studd, a missionary to China, I'll, I'll end with this quote. He says, only one life will soon pass, and only what's done for Christ will last. I want to challenge you to live a life in such a way that you live a life of generosity that it leaves a lasting legacy and impacts other people's eternity. I would encourage you this week, do some reflection with God. God, what does that mean for me? Is there any way I think, the way I do, that needs to change to align more with this truth in my life, to live a generous life? Can you pray with me?